be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. For 30 years, one man single-handedly had the Wichita, Kansas area captivated in fear and played a psychological game of cat and mouse with authorities. Nothing and nobody could stop him except for his own ego. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, and this is Criminal as What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another horrific episode of Criminal AF. I like how you start off with horrific Horrific. Uh, once again, I am Dave Jarry, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Quarter. How are we doing? So we just want to send our condolences to our listeners throughout the Commonwealth over the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Four of the top five countries that listen to us are Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, as well as several others from the 54 countries that make up the Commonwealth of Nations. Now, she wasn't without her controversies, but I think we can all agree that her reign of 70-plus years was quite extraordinary. Correct. So, I was interested in seeing if the line of succession would skip a generation and go to Prince William. Dude, did you see the video of uh, Charles freaking over? Over the pen? Over the pen. Yeah. <laughs> he's like shoo- He's like shooing it, afraid to touch Camilla, it. Camilla, come and sign this for me. No, I, I honestly, if at that point... I, I would, if I was Charles, I don't want all this. Like, just pass it off yeah. to. I'm seventy freaking three years old. I don't want this shit. But uh, I, I, we actually, I actually got in a great debate with somebody about it. Is it makes sense? So, well, we had split arguments about uh, ideas about this. Yeah, America. Um, Whoop their ass. I mean, yeah. <laughs> don't start a fight on the podcast. <laughs> People will start coming at you. <laughs> all right. So, it would actually make sense for America to have a king and queen oh not listen hear me out hear me out i know it sounds crazy but wouldn't it be nice for the president to have to skip all the ceremonial stuff and all these ribbon cuttings and all these like the you know what i mean all the south lawn easter egg hunts and stuff he can just focus on his job and we have a king and queen for it's all that's basically what the, the British royal family does. They do all ceremonial stuff. They have nothing like the parliament. The, the, they have they have a little bit of power in government, but they're mostly a ceremonial they, figurehead. They decide what type of government. My argument to that was the stress of a presidency. Maybe it's fun to go on the, the lawn and shake a Easter bunny set. You know what yeah, I mean? You're cooped yeah. up in that damn office with constant stress. At least may, maybe that they look forward to the little bit of ceremonial things. They I know. You do. look at all the all the all the past presidents. You have like Obama, yeah, who looked like a spring chicken when yep. he got elected. Eight years later, he comes out. He's practically walking with a cane. I know, gray, gray to the the max. Maybe he would have lasted seventy years if he didn't have to deal with all that shit. Yeah, but anyways, I was going to say something else. I was going to be like, look at Trump. He went in and didn't age a bit when he got out. All right, but going back to Prince William, I mean, like. You know how like we had JFK and Jackie that was like Camelot for the United States. Correct. Like I think Prince William and Princess Catherine are like the modern day Camelot. You know what I mean? I can't wait to see how their reign unfolds. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm a I'm Team Harry, baby. Yeah, I'm Team Harry all day. Yeah, Williams, William, like you know, I, I get there's a secession, but right. it would be amazing to see like the underdog come up and take over. Like <laughs> the problem with him becoming, I feel like he would just give away the entire. They're like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Just. A moder- uh, like abolish the the royal family. Well, that's what that's kind of what Prin- uh, Prince Charles. That's what kind of King Charles says that he wants to do. He wants to consolidate who the royal family is, because mm. right now the royal family is like brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles. Duh, duh, duh. They like, want the main bloodline. They just want Charles, 
uh, William, Catherine, and kids. Yeah. Not even Harry. Just It'd be real easy to keep that family super powerful all the way down <laughs> if you just <laughs> kick out everybody. But did you see the funeral? Yeah, I watched a little bit of it. The one person I felt the worst for was Princess Kate. Like she if you if you actually sit there and watch, she is literally holding back tears. You know, because it's not, you know, very royal to like cry in public and yeah. everything. And you just see it, you, you can actually see her gulping down her, like, sorrow. She's like... Yeah, they're very, like, I, I, there's a lot of photos of them two together. Yeah. A lot, like, for brunches and tea right. parties and yeah, stuff and, and like the, that. The later years, from what, I've, from, from what I've read, like, they were, like, two peas in a pod. Like, they did everything together, you know? Speaking of the funeral, I just said I'm Team Harry. How come Andrew... Yeah. Or not, wait, what's his name? Not Andrew, the... Who? Uh, the other brother, William. The pedophile? No, 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 not Andrew. Oh. How come William... Yep. Got to wear the military uniform, because but Harry didn't. Because Harry relinquished his royal—I uh, forget the whatever, whatever, whatever it's called. Like he keeps he keeps his titles, but he gave up the checks and all the other the, stuff. Yeah, whatever it's called. The royal. But you know, it's not a pedophile. Andrew didn't have a uniform either. Correct. Because the queen was like, Burp. "Did you see the heckler? <laughs> he's like, fucked. Prince Andrew, you're a sick fuck." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cops tackle him, yeah. and he's like, "What? I'm not saying anything wrong." I know. I was, I was like, "Let the man go." <laughs> yeah. You don't get a right to heckle. Right. The cops like, "Not right now. Not right now." I'm like, yeah. "Okay." <laughs> Prince Andrew, you sick fuck. <laughs> so good. Oh, that, so was, good. that was great. All right. So for those of you listening to us for the first time. This is a true crime podcast. There'll be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be some vulgar language. Like fuck. Like fuck, motherfucker. All right, that was a little aggressive. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I got a little carried away. <laughs> we understand that criminal AF is not for everyone. But we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the, the debauchery. debauchery. All right, Dave. Yes. Speaking of the Queen's funeral. Okay. And how beautiful it was. Yes. A Florida man had a different funeral for his wife. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Florida man scatters fiance's ashes at Lenscrafters, causing hazmat freakout. <laughs> Tune in now, live at 7 o'clock. <laughs> All right, at 11.20 a.m. on Tuesday, a Sarasota man walked into a Lenscrafter at his local mall. He threw a white powdery substance around the store and fled, causing employees and customers alike to freak out. Police evacuated the area. Anthrax! <laughs> Anthrax! And oh, by the way, this is a, uh, this happened in 2020, uh, 2013, so it was So this is OG. Yeah. This is OG uh, Florida man, by the way. Yep. As it turns out, the man was just a bereaved husband granting a last wish to his deceased wife, spreading her ashes in the Westfield Southgate shopping mall. The man, who has not yet been named by officials, apparently told police his late partner had a strong personal connection with Lenscrafters store. With Lenscrafters? No details have been released either about what kind of emotional tie she had with the large optical retailer in the United States. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> He has to be like a little off, right? I, uh, There's no way. Uh, how long did she work at Lenscrafters? 
It, it better be 75 I years. I know, right? Uh, it, it, she, was, she was the reigning monarch of Lens Crafters. <laughs> they have one of those, like, the little holes where you put the ashes in? <laughs> yeah. What, what's, what's crazy about that is, like, we joke around. Like, you know, everybody jokes around, like, oh, I want to be, put my ashes, like, you know, we yeah. anywhere. Like, oh, bring me up in a hot air balloon and throw me off or yeah. whatever, my ashes off. She was probably joking, like, I want to be buried in Lens Crafters. <laughs> she probably hates that place. And he took it serious. You know, anybody, nobody wants to be buried at their job. That sounds horrible. I don't care if you love your job. You still don't want to be buried there. Oh, my God. <laughs> the real question is, is that, is she haunting that mall for the rest of her life? Oh, in Lens Crafters. 100%, 100%. You're over by the Ray-Bans trying them yeah. on, and you hear, Ah! Yep. Ow! All the glasses you put on, like they're like ghost glasses. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, so you, you see, you start yeah. seeing the, you start, you start seeing, seeing the old lady. Yes. Fuck my husband, this yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Why'd he do this? Bring his ass back here. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> Half of me is in the vacuum, dude. Honestly, though, if you were a store worker and you saw that, that yeah. would freak me out too. Well, I would. Yeah. It would have. Um, well, like you said, it was like back in 2013. So yeah. Posts. Anthrax scare yeah, and yep. fucking yeah, everything yeah. else. White powder, know? everybody's afraid of it. Yeah. On top of that, well, too, unless it's, you know. A little uh, ending of this story is mm. they did not press criminal charges, but the police are going to file uh, civil charges to get the money back for him causing the hazmat. Um, oh, yeah. That's like out. a Because they, yeah. they had to bring in hazmat suits. They yep. didn't know what it was. Right. The town spent a lot of money on it. So, oh. uh, yeah. If you want to uh, spread your ass, <laughs> just don't choose a public mall. <laughs> Speaking of, where would where do you want your? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? I'm I'm going to be a tree. Oh, you want one of those like tree sacks? I'm going to be have. right, real futuristic. Of yes, it. I am going to be a bio urn. Mm, I like it, and I'll be a tree. But I told my kids I want them to save like a small portion of my ashes, like set it set it off to the side, and one day they can use some of my some of their inheritance money that I'm going to leave them. And buy uh, field level seats at Lincoln Financial Field for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes. And while they're down on the field, do a little. Yes. On the field. You got to give me a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna tell you. You're gonna have to figure this out after you pass away. Oh. <laughs> I got an idea though. I'll come just back. a little. What's Garrett <laughs> doing with my ass? Just, just a little bit. You got to give me some too. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah. Oh, what are you gonna lace it? I'm gonna smoke a blunt with you, buddy. Yeah! <laughs> Roll that up. <laughs> Put one in the sky for Jari. <laughs> Sit underneath my tree. <laughs> no, that's actually that's peaceful. Yeah. That's a that that's better than a funeral. Right. That's, that's some love saying. right there. <laughs> what about you? I definitely want to be cremated. Yeah. I don't have a spot yet. No. No. I'm not like I don't latch on to places, things like that. I. Yeah. I I never had a blankie as a kid. I never had favorite toys. I, I just kind of, I don't hoard wow. stuff. Yeah, dude. I just, a little sociopathic, I know. It's I know. crazy. But I don't know. Did you when get enough I, love as a child? I did. Yeah. I, that's, I think that's why I had an overabundance where I didn't need to latch on to something. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know. I would think I, I think I was spoiled as a kid, too. So yeah. I, I got new things all the time, and I didn't, I never latch on to anything. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't have a place yet, but I know I want to be I didn't have that luxury. No shot am I getting buried. Yeah. I don't have that luxury of being spoiled. <laughs> well, way to make it sad. But. <laughs> we have like blocks of government cheese and powdered milk. Yeah, but government cheese is so damn good. Yeah. It was good. Oh, it's the best cheese ever. Yeah. I miss that cheese. I think I'm only going to go on state now just to get it. <laughs> Quit your no, job. No, no. They, they, they give you wick now. Yeah, you know? yeah. You do it. Um, 
I think you just get whatever is at the deli that's Wick certified or something like that. Yeah, you don't get, you don't the, get the big blo- yeah, that oh. block of government cheese oh, anymore. So you just grab a couple like a, I want a, a pound of Land O'Lakes White American. <laughs> that made it, that made the best grilled cheese. I love it. Memories. See, those are memories. What yeah. were your memories? My memories is having the most delicious grilled cheese ever with watered down powdered milk. What was your memory? I don't want to say this because I'm going to yeah. sound like I'm, you know, a spoiled kid. But I used to wake up in the morning. <laughs> I don't even want to say this story on the on the thing because no, I'm just going to go. Go ahead, go ahead, fucker. Go ahead. I would. My mom would wake me up every day for school. Yeah. With like a full blown breakfast, like really? bacon, eggs, you know, French toast, homemade French toast, whatever. Uh, like I, I, I don't know. My mom would always home cook her. She would cook these lavish meals. Yeah. No wonder you're a narcissist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, wait, I, I am a little bit. I am a little bit. All right, so this is what we're going to do today. We are going to revisit the case of BTK, the sick fuck who uh, went on a 30-year murder spree and didn't give a fuck about who he killed, who he affected, not even his own family. He just said, fuck it all to everybody. Speaking of nar- narcissists, too, he would have he would have got away with this if he wasn't so narcissistic, right? Yeah, <laughs> fucking dummy. Fucking he saw he saw an article in the newspaper saying, "Oh, who was the BTK? He wasn't really as bad as everybody thought he was." Yeah, and he's, he's like, like what? "Oh yeah, really, motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, let me send you this floppy disk, Dude, bitch." <laughs> I think he would have got rid of. Uh, we'll get into the story. It's actually a great <laughs> yeah. one. All right, here's uh, chapter one. This episode of Criminal As Fuck contains descriptions of disturbing graphic violence, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. We all have our curiosities into true crime and murder. The reasons, they vary from person to person. My curiosity is the psychology of a serial killer. For me, it always comes down to three questions. The first two questions delve into the what and why. You can usually find those answers in the history of the person and what factors were embedded in their psyche. Interpersonal relationships, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, or in some cases, they were simply born that way. In order to understand the third question, you must dive a bit deeper. When? When did that trigger get pulled in their mind that made a human life so insignificant? Most often, the when usually occurs during the pubescent stage, when an adolescent is navigating their way through their emotional and sexual development. Many of us have learned some form of sexual behavior during this development. From fantasies to fetishes to role-playing, we all have something that gets us aroused. And while most of these behaviors are harmless, some may go into more violent and physical extremes. If a person has a difficult upbringing filled with abuse, they are more likely to correlate this form of abuse with their sexuality. In the case of a Connecticut serial killer, Michael Ross, he was physically and emotionally abused by his mother, and reportedly sexually abused by his uncle. His when occurred at the age of eight on a family egg farm when he would strangle and snap the necks of sick and undergrown chickens. Ed Kemper's when came after he killed and dismembered the family cat when he was nine years old. A surge of power and control consumed him, 
This was due to his mother's constant emotional abuse of being a burden, useless, and never being good or worthy enough for a woman's affection. His emasculation as a child and fear of rejection was so great that in his adult life, he could only have sexual relations with a woman who was dead, and he could assert his power by decapitating them. For Dennis Rader, it came down to a ring. Although Raider's mother wasn't nearly as bad as the previous two examples, she did neglect Dennis by not being very motherly. She was often caught up in her books, TV, or other activities to not give the affection needed in a child's early development, and for this, he held a grudge against her. When Raider was a young boy, his mother was digging through the couch when her ring got caught in a spring. She began to panic and screamed as she struggled to free her hand. She called on Dennis to help her, but he just stood there, watching. Raider found himself aroused by the sight. A woman crying and begging to be released from her restraint triggered a euphoric sensation throughout his body. It was this moment, in my opinion, the when BTK was born. Dennis Rader was the first of four children born to William and Dorothea Rader on March 9, 1945, in Pittsburgh, Kansas. His father, a Marine at the time of his birth, started a job at the KG&E Electric Company in 1948 and soon moved his family to Wichita. Rader's mother was withdrawn from her children. She wasn't domineering or physically abusive, she just didn't seem to want to be bothered by them. Rader was described as an unremarkable child, both in his personality and in his studies. He was borderline to below average, often struggling to maintain passing grades. He was active in the Boy Scouts, in his church youth group, and, as his secret fantasies of bondage and torture developed, he was also active in killing dogs and cats by stringing them up by their necks. He knew that the latter was not appropriate behavior so he learned to separate his reality from his fantasy, and he became very proficient in leading a double life. When he entered high school, he began working at a supermarket, and he had a passion for knowledge. He loved to learn, but struggled in retaining the information he was taught. He had very poor grammar, often misspelling words and using incorrect sentence structure. This would become somewhat of a focal point in later years during his communications with the press and law enforcement. People who knew him during this time described him as quiet, void of a sense of humor, but very polite, and when he spoke to him, he measured every word. His outwardly demeanor made him unnoticeable to those passing him in the hallways, but the fires that raged inside him would one day make him the most hated man in Kansas. Raider graduated from Wichita Heights High School in 1963. He continued to work at the supermarket, and in 1965, enrolled at Kansas Wesleyan College. He made a decision to reinvent himself and join the fraternity. He would state in his journals during this time that the transition to college so far away from home was difficult, and he struggled academically and financially, traveling back to Wichita on the weekends to continue his work at the supermarket. It was also noted in his journals that this was when he began trolling women. There was no record stating that he followed through with any of these fantasies but there were numerous trial runs, and he often broke into people's homes to steal souvenirs. 
1966 in an apparent attempt to avoid the draft for the Vietnam War. Raider enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. During his four years of service, he traveled to Japan, Korea, Turkey, and Greece, as well as the states of Texas and Alabama. It was during this time he became sexually active for the first time, frequenting prostitutes and attempting to bring his bondage fantasies to life. He continued to troll women and break into various military buildings and homes. In 1970, he left active service with the rank of sergeant and returned to Wichita, Kansas. Within the next year, he had married 23-year-old Paula Dietz on May 22, 1971. Paula was from the same area and attended the same high school, and as with Raider, she was a devout Lutheran. During the early years of their marriage, Raider would bounce from job to job and even went back to school where he continued to struggle. In 1973, Raider found himself unemployed and spiraled into an unhealthy frame of mind. He would dive deeper into his fantasy world of bondage. He would often spy on women outside of their homes dressed in women's clothing and masturbate. Raider would also frequently wear women's panties that he stole from various homes and would tie himself up to achieve sexual release. By his own admission, Raider began to wonder, what would it feel like to strangle someone to death? Now, we discussed how one of his childhood activities was being a member of the Boy Scouts. Now, this is where he learned how to tie knots that he would later use on his victims. And he practiced those knots on uh, dogs and cats, where he would string them up by their necks and watch them struggle and die. By puberty, he began having sexual fantasies of tying women up and having sex with them. And he described these fantasies as being like a movie where he was the writer and director. Like when he, he would go on to kill in the future years, when he did his trolling and stalking and everything like that, that's how he envisioned everything. Like He was making his own movie. Right. But growing up, one of his favorite fantasies was tying up actress Annette Funicello. Do you know who she is? No. Way past my, uh, way before my time. Well, you know the Mickey Mouse Club, right? Yeah. From back in the 50s and, and 60s? And oh, no, 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 no. I thought you meant like Britney Spears, Christina no. Aguilera. <laughs> That's just, I just dated myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So she was one of the originals of the Mickey Mouse Club. Gotcha. Now, all of the people in the Mickey Mouse Club would have their names on the front of their sweaters. You know, it would say like Jimmy or Bobby or whatever. And Annette's, Annette's sweater would say, Annette. You get what I'm saying? Nah, she's a big old busty, busty girl. <laughs> yeah, she, she had some cannons. <laughs> she had some yeah, cannons. She was quite the sex symbol back in the day. So, so yeah, he would uh, get off by fantasizing about tying up good old Annette. Oh, God. Yeah. So, uh, I, got, I have a question for you. Do you have a name for your penis? Uh, no, I don't. No? No, I never I never did. I, I get that's a common thing, but like yeah, I guys. like joking with my buddies, yeah, but like Okay, not, well what what I, I don't even remember. No. I, I I'm being dead out I'm being honest. Oh. I don't remember. Like Mine was Moby. Moby? Yeah. Like Moby Dick? Moby Dick. <laughs> So anyway, I'm, I'm kidding. No, I'm not. So, <laughs> no, I'm not. No, he, no, he's not. No, I am not. So anyway, so Dennis Rader, the name of his penis was Sparky. BTK's penis was called Sparky. Yep, he called his penis Sparky. And as he's fantasizing about Annette Funicello, 
He's like, oh, yeah, Sparky, you like that? Where do you think the woman clothing came in? Like dressing up as a woman and masturbating? Well, it came, like, it came with, like when we talked about in the chapter that his first like trigger, as I say in the story, the when, yeah, you know, was when he saw his mother trapped in the couch and she couldn't get out. And she's like freaking out, like, oh, get me out of here. And like, he was like, Dong! Yeah. rock hard. Fuck that's rock fucking, hard. that's wild. Yeah. So his fantasies of, of bondage and, and whatnot always involved women. And for him to feel closer to it, to get more of a se- sexual gratification, he would dress in women's clothing underneath his normal clothes. Yeah, that's, I so. guess I guess that's how it happens. I yeah. don't know. I wouldn't know. Like all the victims that he had, he's always stole. He says he didn't, but he always took women's underwear. Of course he did. Whatnot. He was into that before he was even killing. Right. So then he would, you know, after the murders, he would go back and get off on wearing their fucking underwear. Yep. You know, pretty sick. Sick fuck. A couple of uh, strange tidbits about fucking Dennis Rader. Another great one that uh, passed the military phys- uh, psych- psyche valves. And <laughs> psyche valves. Another, another yeah. one that, you know, ser- only, served thing, our proud country. The only thing that would make this better is that if, if he was, uh, if he had a little stay at a Tascadero State Hospital and was released free and clear. Correct. <laughs> Dude, he was probably having a time of his life in Korea and Japan. Because there's, there's clubs like, yeah. I mean, now, who knows what it was like back then, but oh, there probably then. was still pretty bad for tourists. Back then, it was uh, if you talk to a lot of the Vietnam guys, yeah, out there in the Southeast Asia, and yeah, 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 he was probably having that. That's why he came back here, and he he could never go back. He I was <laughs> he had new fantasies. He was like, all right, I, I nothing can yeah compare to those times. So anyway, so we're gonna go into <laughs> chapter two. This chapter absolutely turns my stomach because how Raider tries to portray this whole event is nowhere near how it actually happened. So here we go, chapter two. I'm Carmen Julie Otero Montoya. Although we have never met, you have seen my face before. It is the same face you murdered over 30 years ago. The face of my mother, Julie Otero. BTK is how you want to be known, and I will not give you that satisfaction. Raider, when you took away my mother, you took someone who meant a lot to a lot of people. My mother loved life, her friends, a good laugh, dancing with my dad, and she loved to help people. But most of all, she loved and lived for us, her family. She showed me how to love, to be a good person, to accept others as they are, and most of all, to face your fears. I'm sure you saw that in her face as she fought to live. My mother against your gun, you are such a coward. Since they were children, my father loved my mother more than any kind of love you could ever comprehend. He adored her. My father was a hardworking man, and we always felt secure. He made sure we had what we needed, but at the same time, we understood there was always someone else more in need. My dad loved to see us having a good time, and he never passed on a dance with my mom, even in the commissary. He loved trips to the beach and to the country. We always went with friends and family. Those good times were very important to him. The thing that everyone remembers of my father is that he demanded respect, but that he gave it in return. I'm sure you could feel his love for his family as you took away his last breath. You are such a coward. My sister Josie, you should not have the privilege of even saying her name. Such a sweet girl. All she ever wanted was to be happy and successful in school. She had dreams. She was my shadow and at the same time her own person. It's amazing to me that you could be so cruel to a sweet, beautiful child. His name was Joey, not Junior. 
but I guess it really doesn't matter to you. You took away the most lovable, fun, outgoing, friendly, and adorable little brother anyone could ever imagine. He could have done something big with his life, but you took care of that, didn't you? A man with a gun against a little boy. You are definitely a coward. The Otero family was new to the area. 38-year-old Joseph Otero, having served in the Navy and Air Force for 20 years, had retired in 1973 with the rank of Master Sergeant. The Oteros were familiar with adjusting to new environments. Being a military family, they lived in New Jersey, England, and Panama, among other places, before finally settling down in a middle-class neighborhood on Edgemore Street in Wichita, Kansas in the fall of 1973. Joe began work as a mechanic at nearby Cook's Airfield, and his wife, 34-year-old Julie Otero, found work at the Coleman Corporation. They had five children, Charlie, 15, Danny, 14, Carmen, 13, Josephine, 11, and Joseph Jr., 9. Joseph and Julie led a strict but loving household. They raised their children to be respectful and stressed the importance of school and country. It is said that all the Otero children were honorable students. This was an exciting time for the Oteros as they began to plant roots in the new community. But lurking in the shadows, evil would soon show up at their doorstep. It has been speculated many different ways as to how Dennis Rader set his sights on the Otero family. Rader himself claims that he didn't know any of the family, but some reports put Rader and Julie Otero working together at the Coleman Corporation, the last job Rader had. I guess the question shouldn't be how he became obsessed with the Oteros, but why? As we will find in all of his victims, Raider would go through a trolling stage, where he would go about town looking to find someone that caught his eye. Once he found that person, he would then stalk them, learn their habits, when they would leave their home and when they would arrive. The Oteros would be difficult being such a large family, but the obsession burning inside of him would be greater than the risk. It may have been Julie that first brought his uncontrollable urges to the forefront, but if it was, she would take a back seat to a new target. 11-year-old Josephine Raider would plan the date and time he would make his move. Tuesday, January 15th, 1974, 7.30 a.m. This would be the best time to strike. Joe would be at work, and the three older children would be in school leaving just Julie, Josephine, and Joseph Jr. He had everything ready. He had put together what he called a hit kit, consisting of a gun, knives, cords, and tools to break into a house. He arrived at 803 North Edgemore Street just after 7 a.m. He crept around the outside of the house and cut the phone line. Doubt began to set in. He paused for a time debating whether to go through with it, or just walk away when the back door opened up. It was nine-year-old Joseph Jr. letting the dog out. Raider and Joseph Jr. made eye contact, and Raider made his move. He forced his way into the home, and things quickly went awry. Joe was home. This is not the way Raider fantasized about this moment. He quickly drew his gun and pointed it at Joe. He exclaimed that he was a fugitive from justice, and everyone would be safe if they just followed his orders. 
He needed food and the keys to their car for his escape. The family dog was making things very difficult for Raider, so he ordered Joe to get rid of the dog. Joe told Joseph Jr. to let him out in the backyard. Raider then led Joe, Julie, Josephine, and Joseph to the bedroom. Joe and Joseph were told to lay on the floor, and Julie and Josephine were laid on the bed. He tied them all up with the cord from his hit kit, then placed a plastic bag over Joe's head and secured it with more cord. The family began to panic. He turned his attention to Julie, who was laying on the bed next to Josephine. He strangled Julie with his hands until she passed out. Raider then strangled Josephine, who also lost consciousness. During this time, Joe had torn a hole in the plastic bag and tried to break through his restraints. Raider then returned to him, placed a t-shirt over the first bag, and then another plastic bag over the t-shirt. Joe Otero then suffocated to death. Raider moved to Joseph and placed a plastic bag over his head. At this time, Julie had regained consciousness and began to plead with Raider to spare her children. To calm her down, he removed the bag from Joseph Jr.'s head and then strangled Julie with a cord around her neck. Joe and Julie Otero were now dead. Raider moved Joseph to his bedroom and replaced the bag on his head, a t-shirt, and then another bag. Indents in the carpet show that a chair was placed next to Joseph indicating that Raider sat there and watched the boy die. He returned to the main bedroom and realized that Josephine was now awake. He carried Josephine to the basement, strung a rope over a pipe, placed it around her neck, and lifted her off of her feet. He pulled her panties down to her ankles and he masturbated to completion as the life slipped from Josephine's body. Raider then straightened up the home, removed the watch from Joe, drove the Otero's car down the street, walked back, and drove away in his own car. At approximately 3.30 p.m., Charlie, Danny, and Carmen returned home from school. They noticed that the dog was outside, which was a bit odd because it would never be outside by itself. As Charlie was attending to the dog, he heard screaming coming from Danny and Carmen within the house. When Charlie entered his parents' bedroom, his first thought was that they were playing a sick prank on them. They quickly learned it wasn't a prank. They attempted to call for help, but the phone was dead. Danny ran to a neighbor's. As the police were searching through the house, Charlie was thinking of how he was going to tell Josephine and Joseph that their parents were dead when they returned from school. He would soon find out. He wouldn't have to. In his confession to the court, he had to state his actions in each of the deaths, and he kind of downplayed the whole thing and stated matter-of-factly with no emotion. But the main thing that stands out with his first murders, the Otero family, is that his original target was Julie, the mother. And as we discussed in the story, uh, Julie worked at the Coleman Court, where Raider had held a job for X amount of years and uh, was let go. So there's... Raider will say that all of his victims were random, whatever. Yeah. But there is a connection between Raider and the mother, Julie, at the Coleman Court. Through his stalking of Julie, he came across Josephine. And his attention suddenly went to her. 
he describes how he killed each of them in this in this statement to the court. But personally, this is just my opinion. I think he's full of shit. Now he said that uh, the first one he strangled was Joseph, which I can understand. Uh, not Joseph, Joe, the father. Yeah, which makes sense. Which I can understand. You know, the, the male figure get him out of the way. Then he says he strangled uh, Julie, and then Josephine. Uh, Julie came too. And we started freaking out about the kids, so he actually took Joseph into the other room, came back, and killed Julie. Um, he says that he that he strangled uh, Josephine during this time as well, <clears throat> and then went back and killed Joseph, the boy. Now, I think that he didn't touch Josephine at all. During this whole ordeal, he had her tied up and everything, but I don't think he killed her. He wanted to save her because that was his target now, you know. So I feel that he led Josephine down to the basement, strung her up, pulled down her panties, 11-year-old girl, and jerked off to her as she struggled and died in front of him. Fucking sick fuck. I don't think there's anything more horrifying than that that poor little girl... Yeah. Her last five minutes on Earth was the, that view of her, like, a plastic bag hung up watching this dude, like, this sick, crazy guy. After you just witnessed him murder your entire family. Yeah. that That's horrible. That poor girl mm-hmm. had to go through that. <laughs> your last five minutes on Earth is that. Just seeing this dude fucking... Oh, that's that's tough. That's, and then, that's rough. And then he ejaculated all over her dead body. There's 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 definitely evil in this world. That's a, that's a special kind of evil yeah. right there. Now, one thing with Joseph Jr. is that there, when police found him, there were uh, impressions in the carpet from, like, chair legs next to his body. So it's believed that Raider brought a kitchen chair into the room, sat there, and watched him, the little boy, suffocate under the plastic bag. That's horrible. Let that fucking sink in. It it almost worked out in his favor, I I believe, too. It's because, like, the fact that Joseph Jr. came outside, and he Mm. instantly had him. As a, as a pawn to like get them, like get Joseph the father and the family to to right. give into his demands at that point. Yeah. Him breaking in and forcefully entering the house that gives time for the father to you know to come react. up with a plan. Go plan. Right. He he was that family was screwed the minute he walked in with a gun mm. and their son because instantly you're like Wh- whatever you need. It, it, it almost even though it was a surprise that Joseph Jr. came outside, mm. it one hundred percent worked in his favor. It's, it just Unf- sucked, like, unfortunately, yeah. So that was the Otero family. Uh, what a what a first way, like yeah. to get your first kill too as a serial killer. Like mm-hmm. you know, usually they're messy, they're uh, you know not unplanned. They're not they're not as horrifying. It gets usually like you know what I mean. It usually tends to scale. Yeah. And what a wow to come out of the gate like that too. So that was the Otero family. Next up, we're going to talk about the case of 21 uh, year old Catherine Bright. Criminal AF will be back after this quick break. You've listened to hundreds of hours of podcast episodes, and I'm sure you've thought, I would love to start my own podcast. That's how I started Criminal AF, and I can tell you firsthand that starting this podcast was one of the best decisions I have ever made. But based on my experience, it can feel overwhelming if you don't know where to begin. Well, that's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout is by far the easiest and best way to launch a professional podcast. They will help you get your podcast off the ground and into every major podcasting platform like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and so much more. You also get a great-looking podcast website, audio players to embed in your personal website, 
detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and the list keeps going. Buzzsprout publishes new blog posts, podcast episodes, and YouTube videos every week so you can learn everything you need to know to start your own podcast. To join over 100,000 other podcasters and claim your $20 Amazon gift card with a paid subscription, follow the link in the episode description. This lets Buzzsprout know that Criminal AF sent you and helps support our show. Begin your podcasting journey today with Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. Your Honor, my name is Kevin Bright, and this is Victim Impact Statement, and I'm here representing my late sister Kathy. The pain and suffering that he's caused our family and the loss of such a beautiful young lady of 21 over 31 years ago, and I think about her and what she'd be doing nowadays, you know, if she could have had a life. Her uh, execution by that monster is, you know, he's got to go on and live his life 31 years now with raising a family, children. He snuffed out 10 people's lives that had done nothing. My sister, she suffered so much, was brought out that she fought, as quoted as a hellcat. I'm so proud of her for that because I knew, you know, she had that in her. But she lived on approximately five hours after that, and she received over 20 pints of blood before she lost her battle. As far as myself, the damage I received, you don't, looking at me, you don't see, you know, that much. I have a scar here, some up here where he shot me, but it was reported that I had permanent brain damage and I don't have that, but I have permanent nerve damage, which causes me to suffer with, uh, my body doesn't regulate the heat very well and humidity. And so I overheat and I you know, get weak and everything. So that's one thing I've suffered with for every day. That's what I like to tell. Thank you for letting me speak. Raider was out trolling again not long after the Otero murders. Apparently killing four members of a young family wasn't enough to satisfy his evil, sadistic fantasies. He was now trolling several women at a time, or as he would call them, projects. This was the case for 21-year-old Catherine Bright. She was one of five children born to Charles and Dorothy Bright, who loved to sing in her church choir. She was described as very friendly, popular, smart, and excelled in her studies at college. According to Raider, he was driving down the road when he spotted Catherine and a friend entering her home. That was it. A chance passing, and she was marked for death. Raider would begin stalking her to find out when she would be most vulnerable, and he also gave her a name. Project Lights Out. The date was set, April 4th, 1974, less than three months after the Otero murders. Raider, equipped with a Magnum revolver and a 22 pistol, would leave his car a few blocks away at a park on the university campus. He walked to her house when he knew she wouldn't be home, slipped into the backyard, cut the phone lines, and broke into her house through the back door. He hid inside a closet that would be most effective for an ambush, and waited. At around 2 p.m., Catherine came home, and Raider was ready to pounce. As she approached Raider's hiding spot, he came out and pointed his 22 in her direction. There was a problem, though. Catherine's 19-year-old brother, Kevin, was with her. Panicked, 
He ordered them both into one of the bedrooms and gave them a story similar to the Oteros. He was wanted in California, and all he needed was some food and the keys to their car, but he would have to tie them up first to ensure his getaway. He ordered Catherine to bind Kevin's hands and feet. Then Raider tied Kevin to the bed. He then led Catherine to a separate bedroom and did the same to her. He returned to Kevin's room, where Raider was going to strangle him to death. As he did so, Kevin broke free of his restraints, and the struggle ensued. Raider pulled out his twenty-two and shot Kevin in the head. With blood pouring out from the wound, Raider left him to die and went back to Catherine. She too had managed to loosen the binds around her wrists, and she began to fight. Raider quickly overpowered her and started to strangle her. As she lost consciousness, Raider heard a disturbance from the other bedroom. Miraculously, Kevin was still alive. Raider went back into Kevin's room and another fight broke out. This time, Kevin was able to remove the Magnum revolver from Raider's holster. They struggled over the Magnum as Raider pulled his .22 out and shot Kevin in the face. He went back into Catherine's room to find that she had regained consciousness, and again, a fight between them broke out. The entire scene was chaos, and Raider was losing control of the situation. Unable to strangle her, he pulled out a knife and began stabbing her in the back and lower abdomen. Raider then heard another noise coming from outside of the room. When he went to go check on Kevin, he was gone. Raider freaked out. He ran back into the house to gather his hit kit and grabbed the keys to both Catherine and Kevin's vehicles. He didn't know which keys went to which vehicle, so he couldn't use them to escape. He had no other choice but to run for it. He hustled a few blocks back to his car and left the scene. Kevin was able to get help and when emergency personnel arrived, Catherine was still alive. However, despite emergency surgery and multiple blood transfusions, she passed from her injuries a few hours later. In an ironic twist, it was around this time that Raider began working for ADT, a home security company, and he would install this security equipment for people who were in fear of BTK. He held this job until 1988. Now, as we talked about with Julio Taro, um, it's believed that Raider also knew uh, Catherine Bright because of their connection to the Coleman Corp. Raider again would say, you know, he didn't know her. He would say that he he found her as he was trolling. Now, Raider calls his his trolling, his stalking, he calls them projects. Now, it's really unnerving when you put this into context. Like, you're simply in your home, in your workplace, walking your dog, literally going about your everyday life, and some sick fuck chooses you to die, you know? Yep. Like, just sitting there lurking. I mean, it, it's just... Blows my mind how callous that can be. The predator instinct is—it's yeah. it's wild, right? With Catherine, this this turned out to be like freaking horrific jumble of a mess. You yeah. Know? Um, for one, Raider didn't know that she had a brother, uh, Kevin. So when they come walking in again, he's like, "It's not going according to his plan." You yeah. know, his his it's, directorial debut. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so this, this actor's not working right. Right. So now he has to separate the two. He goes back and forth. There's a huge fucking struggle. Raider has to pull out his 22 and he shoots Kevin in the head, fucking bleeding out through his head. Goes back in with Catherine. 
He's trying to fucking restrain her. Noises in the other room. He goes back. There's another fucking struggle. Kevin actually gets a hold of the Magnum that he had. Raider shoots him again in the face with the 22. Goes back in. This time, uh, Catherine has broke from her restraints. And they start fucking brawling. Raider eventually gets a gets a hold of her. Whips out a knife. Starts brutally stabbing Catherine. Correct. Here's a fucking commotion going on in the other room. Again. So he goes in there. Kevin's gone. He put up such a crazy fight. I, being shot in the head. Fighting this man off. Yeah. Bo- both of them. Both yeah. of them. Like, they were just... They're, the will to live was huge. Now, the saving grace for Kevin is that he was shot with the twenty two. Yeah, which anybody knows firearms, that's yeah. You don't shoot someone with a twenty two. The twenty two compared to a magnum is, is like a, a pellet gun. Yeah. Basically. It's basically the twenty two is basically a pellet gun. Yeah. I mean not that you can't kill somebody with a twenty two, but it's a lot more difficult. So his saving grace was that Raider used a twenty two to shoot him. If he had used a magnum, it would have been lights out, game over, dead. Yeah. So, Kevin, he escapes, runs out of the house. He's running down the road. So, Raider goes down there, sees the door wide open. He looks out the door, sees Kevin fucking hightailing it down the road. Now, Raider's like, fuck! Freaks out, he leaves. Police end up coming. Now, Catherine, you want to talk about tough. Yeah, not only surviving all that, she made it all the way to the hospital. Multiple blood transfusions. Hours later. Surgeries. Yep. And she ended up uh, succumbing. It's it's horrible too because you could tell she wanted to live so she didn't deserve to die. No, that yeah. that should have been a fail. Mm-hmm. They both should have lived. And this is only a few months after the Oteros, you know, less than three months. Yeah. But th- that's what I was saying about the Otero murders is like th- that the Catherine and Kevin situation sounds like it would have been his first, right? You know what I mean? Murder. Yeah. It was really sloppy. It wasn't well put together. Um, like you said, with him wanting to be the director. He, re- I think, at that moment, he realized how hard this is compared to his last one. Yeah, because I, I don't, I don't think at the first one he, uh, he had everything that he needed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was kind of like he didn't bring any, uh, anything to strangle with. He used his hands to strangle the Oteros or a plastic bag. Yeah. You know, and as he goes, he collects more and puts into his hit kit. Gets better. As he better. calls it. Do you think that Kevin has to struggle that with that for the rest of his life that he ran? I, that's how I. That's how I always look at these situations. It's got to weigh heavy on his heart. It does. But at that point, you've been shot. You've been, like, yeah, I mean, you really have no choice. Yeah. You, know, you you have to. It sucks that you know he lost his sister, but you know he had to survive. He yeah. had to. Both of them dying doesn't help anything. But at the same time, like that's how my my brain works. Like go down to the kitchen, get a knife. It's, he had a gun, so it doesn't matter. Right. You would, you're not surviving that. You don't situation bring a, You anyway. don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Correct. Yeah. But. It's just like, I, that would weigh so heavy on my heart. All right, so now he's got the Otero family. He's got Catherine Bright. Kevin Bright is seriously wounded, but he does live. A little time goes by. He moves G- on to Shirley Vienne with Chapter 4. My name's Steve Relford. Shirley Vian, my mother. I haven't prepared for this statement, but I'd just like for him to suffer for the rest of his life. As the Otero and Bright cases are growing cold, an editor from the Wichita Eagle newspaper received a call in October of 1974. He was instructed by the man on the phone that a letter could be found in an engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. Police were dispatched to the library where they found the poorly written letter 
telling in precise, gruesome detail of the Otero murders. The letter also stated, I did it myself, with no one's help. The code words for me will be, Bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. After this, Raider went silent. The letter stopped, the phone call stopped, and the murders stopped. By 1977, life in Wichita, Kansas had barely gotten back to normal when another family was destroyed by the hands of BTK. Raider had started trolling and stalking again. He had a few women who he had deemed as projects but his intended target, a woman named Cheryl who he had met in a bar, hadn't been home on the day of March 17th. He walked down the road where he had previously trolled another woman, Shirley Vian, and saw her five-year-old son walking along the sidewalk. Shirley wasn't feeling well and asked her son to go to the store for her. Raider had called to the boy and showed him a picture of a woman and a boy and asked him if he had seen them. The boy said he hadn't and then went home. A few minutes later, Raider knocked on the door. The boy answered and Raider introduced himself as a detective and asked if his parents were home. The boy stated that his mother was, but she was sick in bed. Raider walked into the home and immediately shut the TV off and closed the blinds to the windows. Shirley emerged from the bedroom where she had been lying down and Raider pulled a gun. Startled, she gathered her three children as Raider went through the house. He first tied up the children in the bedroom, but they were visibly upset so he gathered blankets and toys and placed them in a tub. He took the children and led them to the bathroom where he tied the door shut so they wouldn't be able to come out. Raider had asked Shirley to help him push the bed up against the bathroom door. Raider explained to Shirley exactly what he was going to do. She was now in a panic and she threw up. In order to calm her down, he poured her a glass of water and sat down with her to smoke a cigarette. As the children were screaming and crying in the bathroom, Raider stripped Shirley naked and bound her legs and hands behind her back. He then slipped a bag over her head and wrapped a cord around her neck. The bathroom door was open enough for her children to witness Raider strangling their mother to death and then masturbating over her corpse. Raider had every intention of killing the children once he fulfilled his murderous fantasy with Shirley, but the phone began ringing and Raider recalled that one of the children told him that the neighbor would be stopping by to check on them. So he hurriedly gathered his hit kit and fled the house. The children were able to free themselves about 40 minutes later. One of the children tried to untie the binds from their mother but couldn't do it. They then left the house and notified a neighbor. In 1983, the young boy Raider first approached, now aged 11, came across a picture hanging on his grandparents' wall and fear shot through his body. It was the same exact picture BTK had shown him six years earlier. So I just want to jump to like when the kids were in the bathroom. Like I said in the story, Raider had every intention of killing the children because they saw his face. When the phone rang, one of the kids said that that was their neighbor, and if nobody answered, the neighbor was going to come check up on them. Really smart. Yeah. Like to have the wherewithal to like... Incredibly smart. So then Raider freaked out and he left, which saved the kids' lives. You know, and 40 minutes later, you know, they ended up getting themselves out. The heartbreaking thing is that the door was cracked enough for all the kids to see what was going on. Yeah, I figure if he tied the door 
it, there would have been some wiggle room. Yeah. So uh, one of the children came out and tried to untie their mother. Oh. Was unable to. So that's when they went to the neighbors. Oh, I can't even. And not only is BDK at this point, you know, terrorizing his victim, he's, t- he's terrorizing people too mm-hmm. for the for the rest of their life. Right. He's creating damage. That poor five year old let let him in. Yeah. He's that that poor boy is gonna have to live with that for the rest of his life too. You know, it's it's he's just leaving a trail of destruction behind yeah. him. It's, yeah, he it's he did, he literally did not give a fuck about anybody. No, and yeah, how, but, how he was able to assimilate himself into a normal life. You know, he was like a, a boy scout leader. He was. Um, a, a prominent member of their church went home every day at, for lunch with his wife, you know, like just made himself appear to be like this everyday all American father. I mean, that goes to show that, I mean, I personally think that he didn't give a fuck about his family either, you know? Yeah. Like he pretended to, he went through the motions of it. The calmness too, to be like, Hey, come sm- sit down and have a cigarette with me. Yeah. This poor woman is sh- like completely in fear. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do to you. While your children are screaming, that, that's that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. Uh, not to make like light of the discussion we talked about. Were you at, you were allowed to walk to the store at a young age? Yeah. I think my son's five right now. I think the think the thought of just sending him out to the store to grab me something yeah. blows my mind. That's, yeah. Now I wouldn't. That's Fuck that. crazy. No. But no. even even then, like a five year old, like his I know his attention span. He would completely. Yeah. He'd see something else and go the other way. That's- yeah, I don't know. Like back then, it was it was different though. It, it's hard to explain. I'm not saying that kids nowadays they don't. I don't want to say that they don't have like a, a respect, but like back then, like if your mother said go to the store and come directly back, you went. You listened. Regardless if your friends were outside playing, regardless if you know a squirrel ran across the street and you wanted to fucking chase it, whatever, you went to the store and you came back. You know, it, that, that's just how it was. Otherwise, you come home and you get the fucking... You get your ass whooped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know how long it takes to get to the store. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> my mom used to... <laughs> this is crazy. Now you want, you want to put this into perspective. My mother used to write handwritten notes and give it to me to go down to the store to buy her pack of cigarettes. I was like eight years old. That's crazy. Yeah. The store clerk was just like, oh, hey, Dave. Yeah, hey, Dave. Give these to your mom. Here's your mom. God. Different times. That was, yeah. Different times. (laughs) Could you imagine nowadays you saw a five-year-old walking down the street? Oh, that's that's fucking DCF, right? Yeah. And then you you pull up and you're like, hey, man, you all right? Where's your mom? He's like, I'm just going to buy buy her cigarettes. Yeah. What? That's like, what? Yeah. Oh, it's a simpler time, I guess. Yeah. All right, before we get too far off track. All right, so next uh, chapter, we're going to be talking about Nancy Fox. Now, Nancy Nancy was a... When you want to talk about an independent woman, that was Nancy Fox. You open up the dictionary, you see independent woman, there's her picture. We'll talk about her in chapter five. My name's Beverly Platt, and Nancy Fox is my sister. I cannot begin to explain to you, there are not words to make you understand what losing Nancy has meant to me and my family. I lost a friend, a confidant. My children will never have an aunt, and I'll never have another sister. Nancy's death is like a deep wound that will never, ever heal. As far as I'm concerned, Dennis Rader does not deserve to live. I want him to suffer as much as he made his victims suffer. But then 
when I think about that in his sick, perverted way, he'd probably find that as some kind of pleasure or reward. This man needs to be thrown in a deep, dark hole and left to rot. He should never, ever see the light of day. And I have some afterlife scenarios for him. On the day he dies, Nancy and all of his victims will be waiting with God and watching him as he burns in hell. Nancy Fox was your definition of a strong, independent woman. She worked two jobs, lived on her own, and she wasn't afraid to tell you the truth, even if it wasn't the truth you wanted to hear. She was adventurous, outgoing, and at the age of 25, she had her entire life in front of her, and she was going to live it to the fullest. To her family and friends, Nancy was their entire world. But to police, she was BTK victim number seven. Raina first spotted Nancy as she was entering her modest duplex. Little did she know as she was going about her daily routine that day, she was now marked for death. Raina returned to her home on December 8, 1977, while she was at work at a local jewelry store. He cut the phone line and broke in through the back door. Through his stalking phase, he knew that she had lived alone, so he was at ease as he waited for Nancy to return. Upon her arrival, she entered her kitchen as Raider thrust into action. He held her at gunpoint and told her that he had a sexual problem, and in order to alleviate that problem, he needed to tie her up and rape her. He forced Nancy upstairs and allowed her to undress in the bathroom. Raider himself got naked. He threw her on the bed and bound her wrists and ankles. As he lay over her, he wrapped a cord around her neck and revealed his true intentions. With the tightening of the cord, Nancy slipped into unconsciousness. And then death. Raider stood over her lifeless body and masturbated onto her nightgown. The following day on his way to work at ADT, Raider stopped at a payphone and called the police. His message was simple. You'll find a homicide. 843 South Persian. Nancy Fox. Police raced to Nancy's home and found her dead. They listened to the recording numerous times trying to pick up on some clues, and they even played it for Nancy's family, hoping they could recognize the voice to no avail. In early 1978, the Wichita Eagle received a poem titled Shirley Locks, mocking the murder of Shirley Diane. Mistaking it as something other than a murder confession, they published it in the classified ads, which infuriated Raider. He sent another letter, more aggressive, more detailed, claiming responsibility for the last seven murders. He then sent a third letter, mocking the death of Nancy Fox, titled, O Death to Nancy. So when, when he goes in there, you know, obviously she's startled. She's like, who the fuck is this man in my house? Raider told her that, you know, he had a sexual problem and in order to alleviate it, he needed to tie her up and rape her. That in itself is horrible. Uh, yeah. So they went upstairs. She got undressed. He got undressed. He let her undress in the bathroom, too. So this yeah. this poor girl is in the bathroom preparing herself yeah. that, oh, my, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to be raped. Yeah. I'm just going to I'm just going to let it happen so I don't die. So then uh, she lays on the bed. He lays over her, puts a cord around her neck. And imagine this is the last words you hear before you die. 
I'm BTK, and you're about to die. Ugh. Why'd you just say it like that? Cuz, dude, that's, <laughs> oh. that's, that's probably, you know, he probably yeah. whispered in her ear, you know? You just made it real, all right, Dave? Yeah, well. God. So, now, all this time he's working at ADT, you know? Business is installing business is booming. Installing the device. Right. So he knew he knew how to break into people's houses. He knew what to do, what you know, so now he's getting a little bit more proficient. Now, during this time, you know, between uh Shirley and Nancy, he's corresponding with the media. The Wichita Eagle and the news network. He writes a first he, he sends a poem and it's titled Shirley Locks. Shirley Locks goes like this. Surely locks, surely locks, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, nor yet fee the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me and death and how it's going to be. And uh, so, a little after Nancy Fox in 1979, there was a woman who BTK was stalking, and he stalked her for weeks. He knew all of her movements, movements, when she's going to be home, when she left for work, when she, you know, did everything. So, and this woman's name was Anna Williams, and she was marked for death when Raider broke into her house one evening. He waited for hours after he cut her phone lines and left a modified wire coat hanger uh, in a shape used to strangle her. He left that on her bed. All right, now luckily for Anna, who was recently widowed, she was persuaded to get out more. So she attended a square dance, then went to her daughter's house directly after the square dance. And Raider, he's sitting there waiting for her. He grew agitated by her tardiness and left before she got home. Now, when she came home, she noticed a coat hanger on the bed. She picked up the phone to call the police. The phone was dead. She had to go to you know, the neighbor's house. But they found a bunch of shit that was in her house missing. You know, panties, uh, nightgowns, uh, some jewelry, rope, whatever. Holy crap. A couple of weeks later, uh, there was a letter that was addressed to her in the mail. And here it is. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? T'was perfect plan of deviant pleasure, so bold on that spring night. My inner feeling hot with propension of the new awakening season. Warm, wet with inner fear and rapture. My pleasure of entanglement, like new vines at night. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear, fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to scent to lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the game we play fall on devil's ears. Fantasy spring forth, mounts to storm fury, then winter claim at the end. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Alone, now in another time span, I lay with sweet and rapture garments across most private thought. Bed of spring, moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air. Sunlight sparkled tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again I trod in past memory of mirrors, and ponder why for number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why did you not appear? Oh, imagine being Anna and listening to that. What a... What a sociopath, too, to be in the closet and pissed off that she's not home. <laughs> like, why aren't you home yet for your own death? Like, mm. that that's crazy. Yep. Like, he's over here getting frustrated. Like, the nerve of you the not nerve. to show, show up so wow. I can murder you. Wow. Wow, wow. Well, I mean, if anything from this, you know, if your friends are persuading you to go out, maybe yeah. maybe you should. I. It's crazy how life works that, like, with that one decision can mm. change the outcome. Right. 
Mm-hmm. It's whether, whether you live or die. So this is one that he wrote for Nancy Fox. What is this that I see? Cold, icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gates to trick me. Oh, death, oh, death, can you spare me? Over for another year. I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. Pretty fucking weird, right? Yeah. So now he's a poet, huh? Yeah. He's he's getting just as much enjoyment from trolling the media and police as he is killing at this point. All right, so we'll go into the next chapter, chapter six. My name is Rod Hook, representing the family of Marine Edge. I would only ask that the court provide the maximum sentence allowed by law to this monster. I, I would also like to thank all the members of the task force uh, for making this possible. I know in, in most of our minds, we can't imagine what our families went through, but I respectfully request that the court think of that when you provide Mr. Raider with the sentence he so deserves. Thank you. It was now 1985. Eight years have passed since the last BTK murder. Raider and his wife Paula have two children who are now of age to participate in activities. Raider became the scout leader for his son's Cub Scout troop and was very active in church leadership roles. The shockwave of the previous BTK murders were still ever-present because, as of this date, none of the murders had been solved, and a killer was still free to kill whomever he chose. 53-year-old Marine Hedge was a widowed woman who was described as gentle and caring and she loved the garden. She had lived a few houses down from Raider for several years, and they would often see each other throughout the neighborhood. Raider never considered Marine as a project because... As he stated later to police, a serial killer never kills in their habitat. Yet Raider was emboldened because he was able to create such devastation without ever getting caught. He thought if he could commit this murder in his own neighborhood, it would be a biggie. On April 27, 1985, he was attending a Boy Scouts meeting when he claimed that he had a stomachache and needed to leave to get some medicine. He left, grabbed his head kit from his car, went to the bowling alley located nearby and bought a beer. Pretending to be too drunk to drive, he called for a taxi to take him to Park City. As he was close to Marine's house, he asked the driver to pull over and he would walk the rest of the way because he needed to get some air. He approached the home and noticed that Marine's car was in the driveway, so he cautiously entered the back door of the residence and crept his way through the house. Marine wasn't home. Soon, Raider heard a noise coming from the front door and hid himself in the closet. Marine entered with a male friend who had stayed with her for roughly an hour. Raider remained hidden until the man left and Marine was fast asleep. It was 1 a.m. when he finally emerged from the closet. He flipped on the bathroom light and approached her just as she was waking up. Marine let out a scream as Raider attacked her and strangled her to death. Unlike his previous murders, Raider took the lifeless body of Marine Hedge to the basement of his church, where he posed her in various positions of bondage 
took pictures, then masturbated before dumping her body in a ditch a short distance away from her home. She was discovered eight days later. The murder of Marine Head struck fear in the entire neighborhood. BTK had struck so close to home. The Raider family knew Marine Hedge and would wave and stop for a quick chat as they passed her house on their walk to church every Sunday. So Raider's children weren't free from feeling fear themselves. After expressing their fears in the wake of Marine's death, Raider assured his entire family they were safe and this BTK would never do them any harm. So I'm just going to put this out there just to start it off. Now, we talked about how Raider didn't give a fuck about anybody. This includes his children because Marine Hedge lived just down the road from them, you know. So they would pass by, you know, him and the family would pass by uh, her house on their way to church every Sunday. And they would wave, you know, like neighborly stuff. The kids knew who she was. And she dies. And now the kids are, like, fucking scared shitless. Oh, yeah. Yes, know? they should be. That it happened, one, to someone they know, two, so close to their home. Yeah. And then for him to have this, like, thoughtful talk, like, don't worry. BTK will never strike in this house. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. How do you know, Dad? Oh, I know. So he he brought her to the church, which I think is associated with, uh, with you know, their daily walks. I think that's how she he associated her with the church and, and whatnot. Like, it's so out of the norm for him, though. But, I mean, and then again, he waited eight years for this kill. Yeah. Which is... It, it's funny, though, how he had the, the hit kit in his car, though. The entire time. The entire time. Never, so, you, never, know, you never know. He probably struggled with that. It was in the back of his head that entire eight years. Right. But now, th- this isn't like, you know, he, he went cold. He actually was dressing up in, in their clothes, you know, still doing his thing. He, Paula would leave the house. The kids were out of the house. He would dress up in the woman's clothes, his victim's clothes, tie himself up, and he would take pictures of himself, you know, and to fucking jerk off to. Now, Paula actually caught him one time. Oh, that's a crazy conversation to have in, the, your in the woman's clothing, right? Yeah. Now, that prompted him to no longer do it in the house, so he would rent hotel rooms throughout the city so he could go and he'd pack up all, you know, the women's clothes and whatnot, the hit kit, whatever. He probably laid the hit kit out, probably fantasized. Ritualistic, yeah. Yeah. It was almost, yeah. The whole, pretending he did the whole thing and then he would take pictures of himself. Fucking weirdo. It's so strange that you can go eight years with a, with your wife and two children. Mm-hmm. Like, how, what, what's, I don't want to get too graphic, but how is it like, usually when, you know, your partner, you have to talk about what you like, what you don't like. Right. There's like... How do you go from, you know, that's your thing to just having regular intercourse with your wife? Missionary. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, 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 fuck, I, I don't you don't know, think dude. there was ever like, hey, babe, let me tie you up tonight. Yeah. Nothing. I, I wouldn't. No, I don't think so. I think he, he, he was a very he lived a very mundane. That's crazy that you can just switch it off. Wait, like pick that. a fence life. You wow. Know? He was not a gentleman in the streets and the freaking <laughs> sheets. I don't think. <laughs> After church, we're going to go home and do it church style. Yes. Missionary, baby, that's it. Yes, we're that's only it. going to have sex to procreate. Yep. Don't look at don't look me in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the lights out. <laughs> oh. oh, wait, one more thing. Too. Do you have sex with the lights on or off? I like on. I'm like more it. of a visual. I got to see. Yeah, I got to see gotta, what's yeah, going on. I got to watch. I got to see what's going on. Sometimes I got to be like, here, you watch me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, um, <laughs> one more thing. We gotta start dialing this up a little bit. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. 
the the look on the face of that guy who sat with her for an hour before he went and when he found out she died that night I don't, that's just me I would have been like wait 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 because yeah. you know you're about to be sworn suspect number one. Oh yeah. no yeah. I oh. So where were you at this time? Uh, uh, I was at her house. What time did you leave? Uh, uh, that guy probably was shitting bricks. Yeah. Well, there's a there's another one a little bit later on where it didn't look too good for the other person. And we'll talk about that in the next chapter. Ma'am, you are Stephanie Klein. Yes, Your Honor. My name is Stephanie Klein. My mother is Vicki Wagerly. I'm speaking to you today on behalf of myself and my brother, Brandon. It's been almost 19 years now that my brother and I had the most important woman in our lives taken from us. My brother and I had to go through so many important moments in our lives without her. Every day is a struggle to get through without her. It's not fair that we had so little time with her. I only had 10 years with her. Brandon only had two. Anyone who knew my mom knew how much she loved her family. She loved her children, her husband, her parents, and her sister. She loved her in-laws like they were her own parents, brothers and sisters. She adored her nieces and nephews. Even her friends were considered family to her. There's nothing she wouldn't do for any one of us. We didn't have enough time with her. It's not fair that her three grandbabies will never get to know her. She doesn't get to see me with her grandchildren. And she doesn't get to see her baby Brandon with his first child. My mom would so love the fact that that baby girl looks just like Brandon did when he was little. She won't ever get to hold them or watch them grow up. She would have loved being a grandma. It's not fair that my four-year-old son has to ask why his Mima can't come home. He draws her pictures. We should be able to take these to her. But they just sit on the fridge. Even at four, he knows it's not right that she should be here with us. What did my baby do to deserve feeling this way? What did any of us do to deserve this? My mother begged for her life, yet he showed no remorse. He saw that she had a family and a little boy right there in the house with her, yet he continued with his sick plan. I ask you today, Your Honor, to show no remorse for him. Don't let this monster have any comforts as he lives out his remaining years in prison. He isn't worthy. Thank you, Your Honor. Vicki Wagerly had met her husband, Bill, in high school. They were just 17 years old when they were married, and by 18, they were parents to a beautiful little girl. A son was added to the family eight years later, and for both Vicki and Bill, their life was perfect until September 16th, 1986. Police received a frantic phone call from Bill stating that he had come home for lunch and found his two-year-old son unattended in the living room. Bill searched throughout the house for Vicky, 
It wasn't until he looked on the far side of the bed, on the floor, he found his wife, bound and barely clinging to life. She was raced to the hospital, but was pronounced dead a few hours later. Bill quickly became the number one suspect. Police didn't have enough evidence to charge him with Vicky's murder, but that didn't free him from being the only suspect in her death. This suspicion lasted for 18 years until the real murderer spoke up. There was a knock on the door at 10 a.m. on that fateful day by a man dressed as a telephone repairman. Vicky, being told that there were issues with her phone line, reluctantly let him in. She quickly regretted that decision. Raider cut the phone line before pulling a gun on Vicky and led her to the bedroom. There, he attempted to tie her up, but he underestimated Vicky's will to survive. In the end, though, he was able to overpower Vicky and strangle her. He posed her body in various positions and took photos of her. He collected his hit kit, took her keys, and drove off in her car. Raider abandoned the car a few blocks from the house and walked home. He changed his clothes and continued living as if nothing had happened. So with Vicki Wagerly, you know, her and her husband, they're high school sweethearts. They had a daughter and a son, the perfect white picket fence family until September 16th in 1986. Now, Bill was actually coming home from work and just before he was getting the home, he passed Vicky's car, but the person who was driving wasn't Vicky. So he's like, Oof. that's fucking weird. So he goes there. He can't find Vicky anywhere. So he's like, look around the house. He's calling her. And then down on the side of the bed, between the bed and the wall, was Vicky's body. Now the police come, you know, they do, they ask all the questions, you know, how, you know, where were you? What did this, you know, everything like that. So they immediately thought that Bill was the suspect. Naturally, when, when something like that happens, you know, the husband who reports the murder, a lot of times it's the husband that did the murder. Yeah, I, I don't know the actual statistics of it, but it's a pretty high percentage of the time. Right. They brought Bill in for questioning. He was adamant he had nothing to do with it. He was completely innocent. They gave him a couple polygraph tests. He failed both of them. Okay. <sighs> it's not looking too hot. No. So. But polygraph goes off of motion. That's an emotional subject, too. Like, that's what I mean. Polygraphs are... Yeah. Well, that, that's why they're not admissible yeah. to court. Yeah, exactly. Like, they can't arrest you because you failed your polygraph. But imagine being like, I'll take a polygraph right now, and, and then you fail, fail both of them. Oh, you're like, wait. That would be my... That would be me. Wait. Right. Yeah, because you're nervous in general. Well, for one, I am a horrible liar. I can't lie for anything. Like, I have zero poker face. You know what I mean? Yeah, your whole, your whole arm will start getting boosted yeah. up, and it'll just be like, yeah. Right. And now... I just know who, how I am. Like, I'll be sitting there and be like, did you kill your wife? Knowing I damn well didn't kill my wife, I'll start thinking in my head, yeah. fuck, no, what are they going to think? They're yeah. going to think I'm lying. Yeah. Like, I'm not lying. I'm yeah. telling the truth. Oh, my God. What do we, you know? And then you're spiking your heart <laughs> your fucking rate. fucking mind starts fucking yeah. racing. You know? Why are they giving me a polygraph? I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, so he fails it twice, but they didn't have enough evidence on him, so they couldn't arrest him. This went on for years. Oof. With Bill being the number one suspect. Eight, 18 years of people thinking, oh, man, Bill, you know, Bill, he yeah. killed his wife. Killed his wife. Poor guy. Right. So the fucking sick fuck BTK fucking went in. And just like Catherine and a, and a couple of the others, Vicky had a very strong will to, to survive. And she put up a fucking fight. Would you say that she put up the hardest fight? Oh, 100%. All of his victims? Yeah, 100%. 
Because Raider, I mean, he didn't walk out there unscathed. You know, he had cuts on his face. He had bruises, scratches, all that kind of shit. Like, she fucked him up. Good. Unfortunately, he was able to take control of the situation. Yeah. So another thing that, that he did that obviously we're starting to see a pattern with is he positioned her in various poses and took pictures of her. And ugh. all while her two-year-old sat in a bobber. Yeah. Fucking disgusting. And what does he do? He goes home. He drops off Vicky's car. Fucking goes and walks the rest of the way home. And just life, life goes back to normal. The, the amount of DNA that this guy has left at scenes underneath victims' fingernails, like it's crazy. Well, he he jizzed in how many pairs of panties? Yeah, nightgowns. You know, they they do have they do have his sperm. That's how they ended up connecting them later. But yeah, like he didn't give a fuck what he did. So we'll go into his final victim. Dolores Davis in uh, chapter 8. I'm Jeffrey Davis, son of Dolores Davis, BTK victim January 18, 1991. May it please the court to allow me to express my thoughts and feelings to all the victim survivors here among us today in the hope that we can leave this courtroom with some sense of peace and legal resolution. For the last 5,326 days, I have wondered what it would be like to confront the walking cesspool that took my mother's precious life. Throughout that time, I always envisioned this day as being one for avenging the past. I could think of nothing but savoring the bittersweet taste of revenge as justice is served upon this social sewage here before us today. While you sink into an emotional abyss of hopelessness and despair, we will channel our grief into positive endeavors, those life activities which would please the ones we have lost. While you agonize over the reality that your last victims were ironically your own family, we will embrace the new family we now have, with whom we will always share a common bond forged from the pain of adversity and loss. While your body wastes away in prison, we will renew ourselves by incorporating into our lives those characteristics modeled by our loved ones. Humility, compassion, honor, integrity, kindness, selflessness, and love. Traits which your twisted, cancerous mind cannot comprehend, I realize. While your wretched soul awaits pronouncement of the one true justice, your damnation to hell for eternity, we will thank God for every day he gives us, realizing as only we can, just how precious life really is. Finally, we want you to know that we who could so easily have succumbed to your quagmire of madness will not give you that satisfaction. Your despicable actions will not defeat us. Our very lives will be testimony that good can triumph over even the most hideous form of evil and perversion. Just as your days are now over, ours are just beginning. In the final analysis, you have to live with the cold reality that while all of us here will overcome your depravity, you have now lost everything and you will forever remain nothing. May that torment you for the rest of your tortured existence. Thank you, Your Honor. Admittedly, Raider had a penchant for younger women, including young girls but he learned through his murders that older women were more vulnerable and less of a risk. Five years had passed since the murder of Vicki Wagerly, and Raider was talking in the next project. 62-year-old Dolores Davis lived near his parents' house and she lived alone. Raider set his sights on her after passing by one day and seeing her in front of her house. 
Raider was on a Boy Scout camping trip on the weekend of January 19, 1991. That evening, Raider made an excuse that he had to leave for a short time. He already had the hit kit in his car, so he drove to his parents' house where he changed out of his scout uniform and into what he called his kill clothes. He then drove to a Baptist church, parked his car, and he walked the rest of the way to Dolores' house. It was very cold that evening, and as Raider was walking, he had reservations about continuing, but decided that this would be the most opportune time to strike. When he arrived, he had difficulty breaking into the home using his usual method. He opted to use a concrete block and smashed it through the sliding glass door. Dolores awoke and raced out of her room thinking that a car had crashed into her house. There, she found Raider. He used the same ploy he had used numerous times before. He was wanted, needed food, a car, and he needed to tie her up. He bound Dolores and went through her house looking for personal items to take with him. He returned to her and strangled her to death with pantyhose. He carried her body to the trunk of her car, drove to a lake near Park City, and hit her body. He drove Dolores' car back to her house, walked to the church, drove to his parents' house where he changed back into his scout uniform, and then returned to his scout troop. The next evening, Raider returned to Dolores' body, placed a mask on her face, posed her in various degrading positions, and took photos of her. He placed her body into the trunk of his car and moved her to another location under a bridge. Wow, you know, give it up for uh, Vicky to change this man's complete outlook on his victims. She whipped his ass so good that oh, yeah. uh, he had to go. He was like, ah, maybe these young girls aren't it. I need to get off. I need to go after the old broads. <laughs> I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> I shouldn't say old broads. <laughs> so now, like, his, his level of zero fucks is, like, fucking increasing because he's on a Boy Scout trip. With his son and his troop. He's like, listen here, boys. I need you to hold on the fort. Yeah. I'm going to go run to the store real quick. Where you going, Dad? You going to come back? Yeah. Oh, he'll come back. That's, that's, could you, like, that's crazy that he went out, changed out of his Boy Scout, murdered somebody, and then went back and changed back into his Scout costume and then came back like, okay, we're going to teach you how to tie a knot today, a sailor's knot. Like, what? Like, wow, you're really good at those knots. Yeah. Oh my god, he's probably the champ. Now, he went to Dolores's, and, and rather than doing the whole creeping in and hiding in a closet or bathroom or a different room, he just goes there and he, like, takes a concrete block and he just bashes it through the fucking glass door. Yeah. It, he's like, I got... I don't care. I'm fucking getting in one way or another. Yeah, it's almost like, a, you know, he was jonesing at that point. Yeah. Five years gone by, he was... He didn't even have time to stalk. It was more of a desperation. A little bit different from the others... He hit, he hit her body in a ditch. Yeah. And then it went back to the... Yeah. And then moved it a second time, which is completely out of the room right. for him. And then under a bridge. Yeah, he went back and he put a mask on her face, the, the woman mask that he wore to, like, whack off to his own pictures. He put that mask on her face and, again, posed her in different fucking positions. So his 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 level of depravity... Depravity? Depravity. 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 Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> So his level of depravity is is obviously escalating to where he's now leaving his kids behind. He's moving her, moving a body multiple times, positioning them in, in sexually degrading positions. Keeping evidence. Leaving his DNA everywhere he goes. This has to come to an end, right? Eventually. 
We'll talk about that in chapter 9. All throughout the span of BTK, his wife and children were oblivious to the fact that their husband and father was a sick and sadistic killer. Not that there weren't any clues. Raider would mark up and save all articles related to the BTK murders. He was obsessed with watching the nightly news and would show visible signs of aggravation when they got something wrong or didn't fully give recognition to BTK. Like with the Otero family, who police removed from their list of BTK murders because they were different from the other murders that had taken place. BTK went dormant from 1991 to 2004. There were no killings, no communications, nothing. That is until the Wichita Eagle ran a story covering the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders. They wrote about the unsolved murders and they failed to give Raider proper credit. This sent him into a furious spiral. On March 14, 2004, Raider had begun a series of communications with the Wichita Eagle, the local news station, and police. The first was an envelope sent to the Eagle that contained three pictures of Vicki Wagerly, her driver's license, and a letter signed by BTK. On May 5th, a letter was received by KAKE-TV with a word puzzle. June 7th, a package was found taped to a traffic sign that contained an in-depth, gruesome description of the Otero murders. Another letter was found on June 17th, claiming BTK was ready to strike again. A package was found by a UPS driver on October 22nd, containing drawings of children in various forms of bondage. A letter was also found with inaccurate statements of BTK, including the year he was born and where he lived in an attempt to throw off the investigation. These communications persisted over the next several months, including a Barbie doll in bondage and a rope around his neck, insinuating the murder of Josephine Otero. One communication, in particular, was a special case cereal box placed in the back of a pickup truck. Inside was a question as to whether police would be able to trace location information from a floppy disk. Police went to the location of where the pickup truck had been located and reviewed surveillance footage. They saw the grainy image of a person driving a black Jeep Cherokee place a cereal box inside the truck. In response to the floppy disk question, police placed an ad in the Wichita Eagle stating that they were unable to trace the information. In mid-February of 2005, the floppy disk was sent to KAKE-TV. Police quickly analyzed the disk and found that it had come from a computer registered to the Christ Lutheran Church, and the author of the disk was a man named Dennis. Police did a Google search of the church and found that Dennis could be Dennis Rader, listed as the church council president. They drove by the home of Dennis Rader and saw a black Jeep Cherokee parked in the driveway. Police believed they had found BTK, but needed further proof. They obtained a search warrant for medical records of Raider's daughter, and ran her DNA against DNA from the semen found at some of the murder sites. It was a familial match. Dennis Raider was BTK. On February 25th, Paula Raider had made lunch for her and her husband. It was custom for him to come home during the day so they could share lunch together. On this day, Dennis seemed to be running a little late. Paula waited at the table for him to arrive when her entire life exploded. 
police charged through the door and started ripping through her house. She was scared, panicked, and told the officers that her husband would be home soon. He wouldn't come home ever again, and neither would Paula. She couldn't bring herself to live there after she discovered the evil her husband inflicted throughout Wichita and the surrounding area. A week later, the lunch still sat at the kitchen table, uneaten. Alright, so BTK basically took everything people knew about serial killers and flipped it on its fucking side. He had a relatively normal childhood, other than his feeling that his mother didn't pay attention to him. So it brings up, like, the nature versus nurture. Of course. Like, nature, he was born that way. You know, nurture, something in his childhood caused him to... Some childhood trauma somewhere. Right. And there really wasn't trauma. There was no trauma. You know, he wasn't beaten. He wasn't sexually abused. He wasn't degraded in any way. Like I said, his mother just was preoccupied. Yeah. Boo fucking who. You know, my parents were preoccupied, too. Yeah, both my parents worked, too. Yeah. They were home a lot. My parents were like, hey... It's fucking 7 a.m. on a Saturday. Go outside. Don't come back till fucking streetlights come on. Yep. Basically. See you, you later. Out, you turned out fine. Yeah. I didn't kill anybody that people know of. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> you know, he did have the, the, you know, the killing of the animals and stuff like that, but that wasn't, there wasn't anything that to trigger that. You know, he just did it. You know what I mean? Because he had this fucking weird obsession. He saw his mother, the one he had an issue with, stuck. And now he had this whole fucking fascination with bondage and everything. The wires got crossed. It's a, yeah. a sexual awakening, mm-hmm. you know? The, yeah. the, it's a prime time. Yeah. When kinks and all that stuff develop. So, and, and he also, he could start and stop. Yeah, to go, like. to go years right. without doing anything Where is rare, too. Normal serial killers are like, that high wears off rather quickly. You know? yep. And we can also say that he was enabled to continue doing what he was doing, particularly from Paula. Paula was extremely naive to what was going on. We talked about how she caught him dressing in women's clothing. You know, that would be a fucking red flag right there, right? Those, well, those relationships always intrigue me. Yeah. That you can, like, well, we'll just swipe that under the rug. We didn't see yeah. that. And then they just go and eat dinner the next day. Like, right. we're not going to talk like about nothing this? Nothing fucking happened. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like with John Wayne Gacy's wife. Yeah. You know? Like, how? She's like, what is that god awful smell? And he's like, oh, I there were rats in the basement. So, yeah, I, this must be rats dying or something. Yeah, I had to kill him. She's like, oh, okay. No, no. <laughs> you know? So, but there was a couple other instances where. They were sitting there watching the news, and during a couple of the killings, BTK actually called the police or the news station or or something like that and kind of bragged on the phone. Well, they made that public. So him and Paula are sitting there watching the news, and they played one of the audio clips. Paula was like, wow, you sound just like the B, you know, you sound just like BTK. He was like, ah, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Maybe. If you say so. Yeah. I don't yeah. think so. And there was also a box that Raider kept in the house. Paula never once questioned the box or tried to see what was inside the box. You know, he was like, this is my box. Do not touch it. Do not look in it. I'm sorry. If somebody tells me that. I'm looking in that guess box. Guess what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing what's going on in that box. You know, she didn't. Now, if she had. But had-then again, maybe. 
Maybe, you know, just a theory. Mm-hmm. Walking in on your husband dressed as a woman, pleasuring yourself. Maybe she she thought, oh, those are women's clothes. You know what I mean? We're just going to not talk about this. That's your box. You know what I mean? Like, I, that had yeah. to have stuck. Like, maybe I that's... Mean, yeah, I can like, see that. she doesn't want to address it, that he has yeah. something going on. Out of sight, on. out of mind. Out of sight, of out of mind. Yeah. As long as we don't talk about it, whatever. You know, you're a great husband. You're a great father. We'll, yeah. we'll just ride this out. Now, if she had opened that box... She would have found what Reader called his mother load. Now, had everything in it? This had the clothes that he stole. He had women's underwear. The photos that he had taken of of the women in, in various positions. Their identification. And numerous other items that Raider had collected from his victims over the past 30 years. So when the FBI raided the house they found all this so the guy had all the photos dna matches Mm -hmm. he was he was guilty you know it's crazy that he was able to remain dormant from 1991 to 2004 the fact that he wasn't caught till 2004 is mind-blowing yeah it's crazy this is this is a span of murders yeah he was actually decades well you know what and and we can go back to what you're saying like there was one victim after vicky and we talked about how vicky fucked him up yeah i think my theory is that that left such a lasting impression on him mm-hmm. that he may over those years he may have had a target or 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 what he called a, a project of a of a young girl right. probably that reminded him of Vicky yeah and he remembered how bad she fucked him up and it probably like you know made him think twice about it of course because he did admit that there were women that he was stalking I'm glad that she was able to haunt him oh yeah for the like you know what I mean after Vicky everything changed yeah. he was he blatantly killed a 62 year old woman and like it was very messy and not like him right you know and then after that he goes he goes cold yeah i'm i'm if there's one thing i'm glad that vicky was able to change his whole outlook on this situation right and the ego on this guy to sit there and watch the news and just god damn it they got it wrong and like just half he can't control himself can't control he can't control like no i have to prove them wrong yeah Yeah. he he would have gone away with this is the craziest part Mm -hmm. about this if he didn't have such an ego he would have gotten away with decades he saw he saw the disco era the 80s the coke era 80s the 90s all the way to 2004 he saw white 2k he started in the 70s he would have gotten away with this he saw 9-11 that that I didn't even think of that. Crazy. He saw Monica Lewinsky's blue dress. I wonder how he felt about that. Seen a little jizz on the blue dress. He saw two Iraq wars. Two, two, two Middle East wars. Yeah, it's it's fucking nuts. But some, but somebody who prided himself in going 30, 30 years without being caught, having like a his own pattern, his whatever. Like how callous? How should I use the word stupid? Yeah. Can you track a floppy disk? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Mm. I consider myself very techy. Yeah. I, I, pretty good with computers and all that mm. stuff. I had no clue you could tra- track a floppy disk. Did you even know what a floppy disk was? Of course. Yeah, I know. I mean, listen. listen I'm, not, yeah. I'm not that young, all right? Gen Y. <laughs> Gen Y, I'm, I'm a millennial, all right? <laughs> but I had no clue you could track. Uh, now, granted, when floppy disks were out, I was in elementary school. But right. I, I didn't know they had, uh, you know, IP tracking, anything like that. Yeah. Well, everything that comes from a computer has metadata. Yeah, everything. But it's it's I didn't I understand that, but I didn't know that you could track where the computer that the the flop like I know you could probably track the floppy disk information, but mm. to be able to track the computer that it came from still impresses me. Right, not bad for us Gen Xers, huh? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I guess so. A little more tech savvy than you thought. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> 
All right, so that'll do it for this episode of BTK. If you liked what you heard, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to become a criminal on Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF. There's five tiers, and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. Links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. Also, guys, check us out on YouTube if you want to see the video version of this podcast. That'll do it for this episode of Criminal AF, signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel, and take care until next time. See ya! Executive producers for this episode are Christine Rivera and Beth Davis. Associate producers are Paul Hodge, Noah Schultz, and Brooke Morgan. Producers are Stephen Day, Trent Gobble, J.D. Driscoll, Devin Dean, Erica Bupre, and Chantal Seisling. Thank you for your tremendous support. 